The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message. Share with you two familiar passages from the life of our Lord. Reading from the Gospel of Mark. Jesus sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whoever shall receive one of such children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him that sent me. And they brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. And he said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. Will you pray with me for a moment? Our Father, it's much more important that we hear you speak to us tonight than it is that we hear any human voice. So somehow in these minutes that we have immediately before us, somehow bring us into confrontation with you, where we sense something of your heart and we hear the voice of your spirit, and we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. These days I travel a good bit, and I get to speak to a rather varied variety of audiences. Some of them, it's flattering to simply be invited to be there. And some of them I find extremely challenging. But I want to say to you tonight that there's no group that I would rather speak to tonight in the United States than you. Because I'm convinced that who you are and what you represent is as important as anything that's taking place in the kingdom of God. Now, I have not always felt the way I feel now. And it was a good chunk of my life when I couldn't have said that with honesty. So I'd like to take a few moments and tell you a little bit of my own personal pilgrimage. I grew up in a liberal background, not in uh, Oklahoma, but in the swamps of North Carolina, where you had to go through Big Swamp, Black Swamp, Bear Swamp, Raft Swamp, or Green Swamp to find me. <laughs> but our background there, the church that I attended, was basically a liberal church in those days. And it took an unusual providence of God to bring me to know himself. And I did come to know him. I didn't have a lot of encouragement when I sat down with my pastor and told him how I had found Christ. 
He looked at me with a bit of apprehension and said, Well, you don't think this ought to have to happen to everybody, do you? But there was something that had happened in my life that was so authentic that I could not forget it. And so later God in his goodness led me to a Christian college and laid his hand on me and called me into the ministry. The interesting thing was that the only thing I understood by ministry was preaching. And it was years later before I realized that in that call there was nothing about preaching. The call was to serve him. But my ignorance was so great that I felt there was only one way that a person could really, truly, at the best, serve him, and that was by preaching. So I told everybody I had been called to preach. I graduated from seminary, did evangelistic work for about three years, then took a pastorate, was in a pastorate for about four years, and then I went to graduate school again. And I went to Princeton Theological Seminary, and I spent two calendar years there. It was in the latter part of that period of my life that my wife became involved in something that changed us and that changed our perspective. My ambition was to be a significant preacher and proclaimer of the word. But in the community that was near where we were living, it was an upper-class suburb of one of the major cities in the United States, there was a Roman Catholic cathedral in that community and no Protestant church. The most of the people who were Protestants were members of downtown churches that were a few miles away. And in that community, there was a grocer who had a seventh-grade education out of the backwoods of Canada. And his wife was a former professor at Columbia University. And the greatest evidence that I found of her intelligence was that she saw the genius that was in that fellow with the seventh-grade education. Now, the world would not have been greatly impressed by that couple because they ran a grocery store. It was an unusual grocery store in that it was one of two business establishments in the whole suburb. And the reason it was there was it was there before the suburb was there. It was part of the old Mohawk Trail between New York City and Toronto, Canada, or Montreal, Canada. And so they couldn't zone that store out when the community started. And so he was there a grocer and his wife. I watched that woman pick up huge cases of canned goods, you know, and stack the shelves. She could work like a dog. They married when they were about 40, and they had no children. Both of them had become Christians, and as they worked in their store, they noticed every afternoon after school the influx of kids coming from wealthy homes to get some ice cream, to get some candy, and they began to be interested in these children. And they began to say, do you go to church? Well, in the summertime, they couldn't go to church because in that northern community, the churches closed their Sunday schools in the summertime. And in the wintertime, it was three miles downtown, and there was enough snow and bad weather that there wasn't too much opportunity most of the time. 
And so they became conscious that these kids that came into their store were not getting any basic Christian education. That burden began to deepen in the heart of that grocer and in the heart of his wife. So one day they bought the house which was next to their grocery store. And they turned to a brother-in-law of mine and his wife and to a few others and said, let's start a Sunday school. And so they turned to my wife. I was commuting to Princeton. And they said, would you help us? So my wife began to teach in that Sunday school house. And uh, I began to get echoes of what was taking place. Now, uh, as that Sunday school developed, one day they came to me and said, we would like for you to preach some on Sundays. So I was home every weekend, and so I began preaching. I stood on a hearth after sitting in the early part of the worship service on a little metal chair on that hearth behind the lectern and preached to a group of people who sat in a room, handful of people, some other people in another room, some other people sitting up the stairs, and I began to get a little feel of what was taking place there. Now, it was the last place in the world that I would have ever chosen to spend a good chunk of my ministry. But God, in his infinite wisdom, knew that there were stacks of stuff that I needed to learn. And there was no chance that I would learn it under normal circumstances. You see, I wasn't interested in children, and I wasn't interested in Sunday school. I was convinced that the most important hour in every week was from 11 to 12 on Sunday morning when I could show my wares as a preacher. But I found myself in that group. Now, the obstacles that were there were amazing because uh, it was one of those things that shouldn't have worked. After all, it was Yankee country, and the predominant Protestant faith around was liberal. The strongest religious impulse in that community was Roman Catholic. It was an upper-class social group, Saratoga Raceway crowd type, and... Uh, the last thing I would have ever believed would be that you could have gotten upper class, highly educated, well-to-do people come to a house for a Sunday school led by evangelicals that they would call fundamentalists with a curl of the lip and a bit of derision within them when they did it. But it was interesting the way that thing worked. There was a couple in the community, remarkable couple. They had no children. He had come from a liberal Quaker background. Her father had been a chemistry professor in an eastern university. He, at the beginning, was the head of personnel for the state of New York. One day the president of the State University of New York attended, and he looked at me and said, I said, his salary. The fellow called him by the wrong name. He later was sent by the United Nations to Egypt to put Nasser's government together. And later he became one of the 
vice presidents of the State University of New York with its 50-some campuses and a third of a million students in it across the state of New York. Remarkable couple, needless to say. Now, they had no children, but they adopted two children. And when they adopted those two children, they became almost more concerned about the well-being of those two children than if they had been their own natural children. So Audrey found out that there was a Sunday school in that community. Here it was, right side of the grocery store where she bought her groceries. And so she talked with Mrs. Bryan about the possibility of bringing her children. Really, Mrs. Bryan talked to her about her bringing the children. But she thought that she was initiating this interest in the development of these two children that she had. So one Sunday, she broke out of her pattern, never went to church, and she brought these two children. She had to take them into a back room where that class was. And she did that week after week. And one day she noticed very quickly as she came that as she walked back to deposit them and then to leave them, in one of these rooms there were some adults sitting And so one day she turned to Mrs. Bryan and said, what are those adults doing in Sunday school? And Mrs. Bryan said, why, they're in a Bible class. They're learning the Bible. She said, do you mean you teach the Bible to adults? And Mrs. Bryan said, well, yes, we teach the Bible to adults as well as to children. Audrey told me later, she said, you know, she said, when I would walk past that room, to drop my children, and then turn around and come back. As I passed that door, as the weeks passed, a magnetism developed. A magnetism that was so intense that one day it caught me. And before I knew what I was doing, I had slipped around the corner into that room and went to the back of the room and sat down and tried to get as insignificant as I could get. So nobody would know I was there. I could not conceive of the privilege of knowing something about the Bible. I had never heard of adults studying the Bible. As she listened, her heart began to open, her life began to open, and she had a profound conversion to Christ that took place in that Sunday school class. Then her problem, of course, was her husband. He would bring them when she couldn't bring them, and he would oftentimes come to pick them up after she had brought them, and he would pace back and forth on the porch of that house, pipe curled down over his lip, in his shorts as he was getting ready to go play golf for the day, impatiently waiting to get these kids of his and get them home so he could get on to the important business of the Sabbath. And then one day, she asked him to come to see a film that was being shown. It was by a missionary from Spain, and it dealt with the conversion of Roman Catholics. He was so offended by that film that he was in a white rage when he went home at the bigotry of these people who thought Catholics ought to be converted. And so that night when they crawled in bed, he raged. And she lay there, and at first she said, Lord, 
Why did you let me do that? Why did you let me take him to that? And she said, the Lord answered me. The Lord said, give thanks. At least you've got his attention. (laughs) Because up to that point, every time she spoke about Christ, he, with his liberal background, would say, yes, yes, so condescending and so. She said, that night it dawned on me I had his attention, and while he was in that rage, I turned and witnessed to him as clearly as I knew how. In a few weeks, he showed up for Sunday school. (laughs) And the day came when he was the treasurer and one of the founding members of the committee that put that church together as an established church. Now, Audrey became the greatest visitor that I had ever seen. She could go to any person's door, punch the doorbell, the person come. She was so radiant that I had known her for two years before I realized she was homely and that she really wasn't beautiful. I thought she was magnificent. And after about two years, I saw her. But she'd stand at the door and just radiate and tell them about Sunday school and the opportunity of learning about the Bible. One morning, she invited the Episcopal bishop, not knowing who he was to come to our Sunday school on Sunday morning. And she was so gracious that he looked back and said, Daughter, I'm usually busy on Sunday morning. I'm the Episcopal bishop. But she was so gracious in it, he was not offended. What fascinated me was that after she'd been three or four times, she'd look at me and very knowingly say, Now you can go. Because she knew if I went first, it was all over with. But she prepared the way. And so I rode the back of Audrey Price in contact after contact after contact. Now, out of that, I began to learn some things. In that church, the emphasis was first of all on children. It was not on adults. And I began to watch people who cared about little folk. Every Sunday school teacher had not only to teach his class or her class, and it was the first time I had ever seen men teaching children, but there were some, but every month that teacher had to have all of his or her students in some kind of social group where the teacher could build personal relations with them. And then once a month, Mrs. Bryan got all the Sunday school teachers together And we had a time of teacher training. And on that same Sunday, we visited almost everybody in that community. And then, of course, Mrs. Bryan began to bring in people who knew something about Christian education. She knew I didn't know anything about it. I was from Princeton. And so she brought in Henrietta Mears from First Presbyterian Church in California, in Hollywood, She and her husband went to Ridgecrest to see what the Southern Baptists knew. And one day they said to my wife, we want you to go to Kansas City. And they paid her way. They never expected her to be any more than just a temporary teacher in that Sunday school. Because at that time I had no connection with it. But they paid her way to fly her 
to Kansas City where there was an Assembly of God Sunday School Convention. And they said, you learn everything you can learn, and when you come back, you share it with us. They felt they were in incredibly big business. Now, you know, I watched this thing wide-eyed because I'd never seen anything like that. Because, as I told you, I thought the big business in the church was preaching. And I thought the important people in the church were adults. And I didn't have time for children. That was for people, Christian education was for people that were not quite as bright as some of the rest of us and not quite as gifted as some of the rest of us. I look back now at the way Arnold and Leah Bryan tolerated my ignorance and my arrogance with awe. But a guy with a seventh grade education from the backwoods of Canada and his wife, who had excellent what we call technical training, they took a young ignoramus and began to introduce me to what I now believe to be the most important work in the kingdom of God. You see, in the years that have passed, I've come to believe that the most important period in any person's life is between 5 and 15. Now, I'm not an expert on child psychology or on psychology. I'm just, I just have to live with the observations that I've made over 70 years and the experience that I've gained over 70 years. But as the years with me and as the decades have passed, the conviction has deepened that the most crucial decade in any person's life is between 5 and 15. And if that decade can be captured, there can be long-range eternal consequences out of it. Now, you know, when I had time and got some of my arrogance out of me, or God got some of it out of me, I began to realize that that was what happened to me. You see, I was 13 when I found Christ. My older brother was 18. He was old enough that he could say, I don't want to go. I was not old enough. And so I found Christ, and my life was lived on one path, and his was never lived on that one, but was lived on another one. The only reason my life was different from his is because somebody got to me younger than they got to him. You see, my father, unwittingly, not knowing what he was doing, found himself in a holiness camp meeting and came home and said to my mother and to the rest of us, we want to go as a family. And so when you're 13, it's hard to tell your father you're not going to go. You hard to tell my father you're not going to go. And so, uh, after all, and I wouldn't want to look like a sinner... And so I said, well, yeah, I just love to go. Last place in the world I wanted to go was to a camp meeting as I had heard about it. But I got there and I found myself in a Bible class of 13-year-olds. There was a lady who taught us whom they called Mother Clark. She looked at me and sized me up very quickly. And after about three days, she looked at me and said, Dennis, would you stay and help me? pick up my things 
packed and helped me carry them back to the hotel. And I said, I was quite flattered. I said, well, yes. I didn't know I was going to be trapped. (laughs) And as soon as she got rid of all of the rest so I would not be humiliated, thank God for her wisdom, she looked me directly in the face and said, Dennis, do you know Christ? Now, if it had been at home and my mother, I would have lied because I had a face I had to keep up. If it had been my Sunday school teacher at home, I would have too, probably. But with this lady, I couldn't. I said, oh, no. She said, wouldn't you like to? I said, well, yes. Now, I don't know what we prayed. I prayed. She prayed. But I know that when I walked out of that little classroom, I had been regenerated. I was 13. Now, I told you that that was a holiness camp meeting. Coming out of a liberal church with pastors that were Duke Yale men, you can imagine how much theology I knew. Well, I listened to a preacher preach a sermon on entire sanctification. I'd never heard the term. But when he finished his message at 13, there was something inside me said, if there's more for me, I want all I can get of what I've found. And I went forward and knelt. I've never told this many times, but since you're who you are, I'm going to share it. As I knelt, I didn't know how to pray. I knew no theology. But there was something inside me said, I want to be wholly his. Well, if I was to be wholly his, I had to give him everything I had. That's the way I understood it. Only thing I owned was a trombone. So I said, Lord, you can have my trombone. He really didn't get very much. But nevertheless, as I knelt there, suddenly there came to me a consciousness of the presence of God that was as rich as any experience I have ever known across the 57 years since that moment. Do you know how real the living presence of Christ was to me? There was this overwhelming sense of having been cleansed. I was in puberty, had all that sense of deep defilement and contamination within me. I felt clean for the first time in years. There was that overwhelming sense of a fullness of love within me. And that came from the nearness of Christ. I didn't know how to describe it. It wasn't so much that he was in me or that I could reach out and touch him, but that it was I was in him. And everywhere I turned, there he was. I had never stayed awake a night in my life. But it was 6.30 the next morning before I went to sleep again. And I went fast asleep in the morning prayer meeting. Now, you know, I don't know what you believe, but I want to tell you what I believe. I believe that a 13-year-old can know God as well as anybody at any point, anywhere, in his personal pilgrimage. In fact, I've come to the place where I suspect 
that a person who's 13 can know him deeper, perhaps, than at almost any other stage in a person's personal existence. And as I think back, I think, Lord, what would have ever happened to me if somebody had not captured me for Christ during those days? Now, when I went home, I didn't know a kid in my high school that was born again. And I didn't know a kid in my local church that testified to the new birth. And so I went through some difficult and some lonely days. But I had a memory. I had a memory that could not be scrubbed out. I had a memory that nothing could take from me. I had met Christ. And I knew what his fellowship could be like. And so in subsequent years, when I wandered a bit, there was the memory. And it was five years later, before I really came, maybe six, halfway through college, when I came again to know what it meant to have the fullness of the Spirit, filling my life and His anointing in that same sense upon me. But now, I don't know about you. That's the way it happened to me. But as I went through the system... I came to think adults were the important people and the adult years are the important years. But the only reason I'm here tonight is because somebody caught me then. Now, in every one of our churches, there are people like this. I'd like to know if you're catching them. (laughs) I'd like to know if you're bringing them to the place where they know him. You see, it wasn't a preacher that brought me to that. It was a woman. It was a teacher. And it was somebody who cared and loved me. Now, I know that some of us have to be preachers. But I've long since come to the place where I'm convinced that there is a role for the layperson that a preacher can never touch. And there is a role for the lay person with the young person and with the the non-clergy that the clergy can never touch. Now, I thank God he has a place for birds like me. He has a place for all of us. But you are at a strategic place in the kingdom of God. And do you know, if the Sunday school teachers in this country could be turned on to the potential in their position under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what could happen? Our world could be transformed. Now, I watched that work in that community. You see, as I said, it was a more affluent, more highly educated, more sophisticated community. And we didn't even have stained glass windows All we had was a a house that we met in. And somebody said, could that be done? Well, it was. I remember I told you about uh, David and Audrey, that kind of crossing the social lines. We had different nationalities. I'll never forget the Armenian family that came, Berberian. I always wanted to call it Barbarian, and he corrected me until finally I got it straight. But his 13-year-old daughter, he was a medical man, who's who in American men of science. 
decorated by the Lebanese government. His 13-year-old daughter came to Sunday school. I remember the first time I taught a Sunday school class, and she was in it, and she challenged me, and she was a brilliant, beautiful little thing, and made me sort of defensive the way she challenged me. It's interesting how insecure some of us are. But then she found Christ. And then one day when she was in the University of Rochester, majoring, if you can believe it, in pre-med and also in piano performance, she was invited by the conductor of the Albany Symphony Orchestra to be the guest artist for one of the concerts. And so I sat and listened to her play a concerto. The applause was tremendous, and she stood to announce her encore, beautiful little brunette, olive complexion, sort of oriental. And she said, I want to play for my encore a study written by one of my professors. It is a study in blacks. Very quickly, you will sense the mood of despair and depression in it. I've asked my teacher to write a sequel, which would be a study in lights. Because, you see, my life was like the piece I'm going to play until Jesus Christ came into my heart and darkness was turned into light. And that secular audience, you could have heard a pin drop on the cushions. And she sat down. She went to medical school, and when she went the first time to her class to where her cadaver was, she found standing across the cadaver a boy from one of the wealthy homes in that part of the country, and he was a graduate of one of the New England finishing schools, you know, very proper credentials. And he looked across at her and said, What under the sun are you doing here? And she said, I'm going to be a missionary. Now, what she didn't know was, one day climbing one of the Rockies, he had had a religious experience. And he decided he wanted to be a missionary, and he had never met one. It was love at first sight. They're in Nepal tonight and have spent 20 years in Nepal, and he has written a commentary in Nepalese on the whole Bible. You never have the vaguest notion what you're doing when you're dealing with a group of children. <laughs> you never have the vaguest notion what you're doing when you're dealing with a group of children. Now, I remember that those were the 50s. You remember the racial barriers in those days? In our community, we had a black family. He was a doctor. He was from Charleston, South Carolina. I came from North Carolina. He said, I'm a fellow refugee with you from the South. His wife was the president of the Vassar Alumni Association in that part of the country. They had a daughter, beautiful little thing. And they sent children, get biblical training. His southern memory was such that his wife... And his wife's. So one day the wife, Mrs. Bryan, selling groceries, talked her into bringing her daughter to Sunday school. She wasn't going to come. She was just going to bring her daughter. 
She'd been coming about six weeks when Joe came. And after Joe had come for about six weeks, he said to me, could I join this church? And I instantly thought, wonder how much he knows about the gospel. And I thought, if I show any hesitancy, he's going to accuse me of race prejudice. So I thought, Lord, how do I handle this? So I went to see Joe. And I said, Joe, why are you interested? He said, uh, well, my wife and daughter have been up there and there's something contagious and they've caught it. And at first I was scared to go lest I catch it too. But I went and I've caught it too. So I said to him, well, Joe, this is not the Kiwanis Club. He said, what do you mean? I said, Joe, you've got to believe some things if you're going to join the Christian church. He said, well, I don't have to believe that thing you recite every Sunday morning, do I? I said, what do you mean? Well, he said, that thing that begins, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I said, what's wrong with the Apostles' Creed? Well, he said, I'm sure there's nothing wrong with it. Maybe it's me. He said, I'm a medical man. He said, that line in there, born of the Virgin Mary. I've had stacks of girls that came to me and said there was no boy involved. And I've had a lot of their mothers that tried to persuade me there was no boy involved. But up to now, I've never believed one of them. Am I going to have to believe them if they come like that, if I join your church? I looked at old Joe and said, Joe... I wouldn't argue with you 30 seconds about how he was born until we established who it was that was being born. And he said, what do you mean? I said, this wasn't just an ordinary person. This was a second person of the Blessed Trinity becoming one of us. He said, what do you mean? And I talked to him about the Incarnation. And he, a black whose father was an undertaker, whom he had assisted in his early years, he'd been in a thousand religious services, he looked back at me and said, Kinlaw, I never heard such a thing in my life. I said, well, what are you trusting in? Well, he said, if he's who you say he is, I don't have anybody else to trust with the need I've got in my heart. His eyes flushed full. He became our financial secretary in the church. One day I was taking the offering. And I stood, stepped down in front of the pulpit and bowed my head to pray. The four ushers were standing in front of me. And I looked down and noticed eight feet. It's interesting. It's a good thing that people in the congregation don't know what goes through the head of the preacher while he's up front. The same way it is a marvelous thing that the preacher doesn't know what's going on in the head of this audience out there in front of him. But I suddenly became conscious of eight feet. And do you know who those eight feet belong to? One of them belonged to a boy who'd grown up in Peru. Spanish. Raul Nunez. His family was on the wrong side of the political fence when a coup took place, and they had to flee the country. 
He came to our church to be married. The girl he was marrying and he both were Arthur Murray dance studio teachers. She was as blonde as he was brunette. Both of them had been converted. And both of them were Sunday school teachers when I looked down at those eight feet. Another was Dr. Barbarian, of whom I spoke, an Armenian from Lebanon. A third one was Joe Black from Charleston, South Carolina. And a fourth one, his name was John Kohler. If he were here, I'd call him a Polak. He wouldn't object to that. He'd had five wives. He was a good Roman Catholic. He ran the bar at the Kitty Hawk Room at LaGuardia, and his wife, current wife, had run the bar at Idlewild. And one day a Baptist layman came in, climbed up on the bar stool, and looked at John and said, John, do you know Jesus loves you? And John got converted. He was the most avid visitor that we had in our church. And he and his wife taught a Sunday school class. And I looked down at the feet of a Pollock <laughs> and a Southern black and an Asian and a Latin in an upper-class white suburb and said, the gospel works. <laughs> And it didn't come from the preaching. <laughs> and it wasn't done by the preacher. It was the lay people and their concern for children. Now, out of that, we got access to adults. Because, you see, when the kids came, you had a hook in the parents. And the most effective ministry I had in that was one day when two of the mothers came to me one of them sounded like Tallulah Bankhead, a bourbon voice. And she looked at me and said, uh, we used to have a Bible class taught by a lady, and she got sick and can't teach us anymore. Both of these ladies were high Episcopalians, members of the big Episcopal cathedral downtown. Best example of Gothic architecture in that part of the country. I remember the first time I visited her in her home, she did her best to give me a, a drink. I said, I... I don't drink alcoholic stuff. She said, the bishop always does when he comes. But she looked at me in that gravelly voice. She said, Dennis, a whole bunch of us are going to hell unless somebody does something for us. Would you help us start a Bible class? There was a lady that came and one morning after I had... Uh, Prayed at the beginning of the class. I started teaching. I'd been teaching about five minutes. She'd never been there before. She was a graduate of the London School of Dramatic Arts. One of her favorite things was to do a Shakespearean soliloquy in Georgia Southern accented drawl for fun. She was a writer, wrote for a Reader's Digest. Her husband was a steel man most knowledgeable man on European cathedrals that I ever met, could lecture by the hour on them. Well, one day she came. 
And she, uh, after I'd been teaching about five minutes, she raised her hand and I said, yes. She said, I don't believe a word of that. (laughs) And for an hour, she argued with me. And all the older ladies in the group said, if it's going to be like this, we don't want to come. I said, wait a minute, give her a little time. So I begged them to be patient, and the next week I bowed my head and prayed. When I raised my head, I looked, and up went Betsy's hand, and I thought, oh, no. And I said, yes, Betsy? She said, well, I checked up last week when I got home. You were right, and I was wrong. I want to apologize. I said, thank you, Lord. (laughs) In about five minutes, up went her hand again. And we went at it again. But one Sunday, it was about 1.20. You know, in a house, you can't get too many people in, so we had three morning services. And uh, about 1.20, we were sitting at the table. I'd had three services that morning. We were eating together as a family, and the phone rang, and it was Betsy. And she said, Dennis, can you come immediately? And the way she spoke, I knew something was wrong. So I said, right now? She said, yes, right now. So I went. I walked in a rather palatial home, and as I walked into the doorway into the corridor, there she stood, tears streaming down her cheeks. And I looked at her, and I said, Betsy, what's wrong? What has happened? She looked back at me soulfully and said, Dennis, I see it. Dennis, I see it. And she wept. I said, Betsy, what do you see? Oh, she said, I see it. For the first time in my life, I see it. She said, it was sitting in the choir this morning in my Presbyterian church downtown. And we were having communion. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood which is shed for you and for the remission of your sins. And she said, for the first time in my life, I saw it. He did it for me. And she wept. You know where that started? Sunday school. (laughs) You all are the front line. We're not. God can get along without us, but He cannot get along without you. You're the troops. Now, I want to say that your business is bigger than you think it is. Because, you see, uh, you'd have to be a prophetess the way Mother Clark was to know what was sitting in that class of 13-year-olds. Do you know these school buses around the country that have the blue bird on the side of them? Largest school bus company in the world. Two of the sons of that family were sitting in that class. And they found Christ through that class the same way I did. There have been millions of dollars that have gone into mission work and Christian work around the world. (laughs) Out of that class. And the influence, there were others, but Mother Clark was a major one because George Luce told me so and Buddy Luce 
You don't know what you've got when you've got kids in your class. Certainly nobody would believe that down in the middle of those swamps with the alligators when I was growing up, I'd ever be talking to this many Nazarene Sunday school teachers and pastors. You don't know what you're doing, but God does. And you see, what you're doing is part of a major battle plan. Now, may I take the time to share quickly a couple of stories in connection with that? You know, I'm convinced that there are hinge points in history. I'm almost convinced that there are some days when not even God can do anything. Now, I don't want to say that out loud, but uh, there are some times when the circumstances are such that people can't think new thoughts and people can't do new things. And then one day something happens and there's a breakup and new possibilities emerge. I think in the last three years, we've heard the creaking of the hinges of history. And I think there are things possible today that were not possible ten years ago. You never dreamed that the Church of the Nazarene would be beginning missionary work in Russia four years ago. Nobody in the Church of the Nazarene believed it. But it's there. We've got six Romanian kids at Asbury and three Russian kids. None of us dreamed of that four years ago. That door is open. When you get Roman Catholics locked arm in arm in the United States with fundamentalist Baptists in front in the anti-abortion fight, the world is changed. And when you get the chasm between the Eastern Church and the Western Church crossed the way it is today, the world has changed. It was 1989, before the Berlin Wall fell, about ten days. I got a phone call from Sam Camelace in the World Vision. Sam's an Indian. He had just returned from Romania. And he said, Dennis, I had one of the most remarkable experiences of my life. I said, tell me about it, Sam. He said, I had an evangelistic crusade behind the Iron Curtain in Romania. I said, Sam, that's impossible. Oh, he said, yes, I know, but I did. He said, the place was jammed every night. He said, every night that I gave an invitation, hundreds responded. One night I didn't give an invitation and hundreds responded anyway. In a Protestant service, I watched Greek Orthodox priests come forward to receive Christ in their regalia. He said, but one night I noticed in my audience something that I couldn't explain. He said, I noticed an inexplicable sound. He said, then I noticed that the sound came in waves. Then he said, I noticed that the wave of sound came every time I used the name of Jesus. And then he said, I realized it was the women weeping. And then he said, the sound got louder. And when the sound got louder, I knew the men had joined them. He said, by that point, Kenlaw, every time I used the name of Jesus, I was weeping. He said, you know... I'll never get over this. He said, you know, Kenlaw, 
when the last alternative option to Jesus has been exhausted and shown for its true bankruptcy. The name of Jesus takes on great allure and incredible power. Ten days later, the Berlin Wall came down. Sam took me with him to Moldavia in Russia for a pastor's conference after that. We found ourselves sitting in the office of the Minister of Culture and Cults. Now, the Ministry of Culture and Cults was the ministry used by the KGB to oppress religion in Russia. We took three Baptist pastors with us. And when we went in, we found ourselves in the presence of a man who was about six foot four, lean, an irritated tone in his voice, and a personal dynamo of energy just exploding in him. You could feel it. And when he spoke with that irritation in his voice, I thought, this is hostility. I noticed that the apprehension level of my Russian friends, Baptist friends, rose. I thought, Kenlaw, you're a long ways from home. My apprehension level started going up. And so as we sat, slowly I began to realize the irritation in his voice was not anger or hostility, but it was frustration. This fellow, a movie producer and a poet, turned finally and looked at us and said, let me explain. I'm the minister of culture. You know and I know that it is in a people's religion that their culture is best expressed. And he said, our government decided to take our religion away from us. And when they took it, they took our soul. So that now, we don't know who we are, and we don't know whom we're supposed to be. He said, you see... We are a people who have stared into the very face of the devil himself. And we've come away with our flesh seared. We need help. And today, communism is dead for all practical purposes in that part of the world. And the door is wide open. But you know what made that possible? the people that had enough Christian faith and enough Christian commitment that they'd go to prison, they'd go to death, they would suffer all sorts of suffering rather than give up their faith in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, it won the battle. Now, you see, we haven't gotten that far yet. America's just walking into the battle. Today, the headline in Kentucky is that the Supreme Court of the state of Kentucky struck down our anti-sodomy laws. So that now, sodomy, recognized as something detrimental to the human race through all of Western culture's history, is now legal in the state of Kentucky. The 26th of August in the New York Times, opposite the editorial page columns, 
was about the duke that hated jelly beans. The king left his country, and this young duke was left in his place, and he didn't like jelly beans. And so he made a rule that nobody could have jelly beans. And then he realized that there were some people that didn't have a mother and a father the way he did. So he ruled that everybody that came from a family without both the mother and father should be rounded up because the pattern should be like his family was. And then the writer went on to say, I'm more afraid of Dan Quayle's family value movement than I am the sexism or the violence on American TV. You see, the writer was a woman who has a child and lives in a relationship with another woman. I don't like for people to object to my lifestyle. Our society now looks upon human sexuality and sexual choices as of the same significance as liking jelly beans. The sacred is gone. And we've got to prepare people to stand in a culture that's disintegrating. And it ain't going to be done in a 30-minute sermon. You are the front line of defense. You are the front line of offense in this battle that we're in. We've got to have some Daniels and some Shadrachs, some Meshachs, and Abednegoes. And you're not going to get them if we can't get them early and train them well. I don't know anybody in the world who's in more strategic business than you are. Are you giving it your best? Are you letting the Spirit use you the way He wants to? You have my prayer. And the Church of the Nazarene has an almost unique opportunity in the world, the American church. I hope you sense that. Bless you.